this morning, I feel like I've really uh, become very familiar with Mary Magdalene. And I believe that it's been in my past and in my history and preaching on Easter uh, Sunday, I've always focused on John or I focused on Peter, maybe focus on the angels, focus on the words of Christ to the first witnesses of his resurrection. I've even focused on the group of women because we believe that Mary Magdalene was not alone, but in the Gospel of John, he emphasizes Mary and her actions. You'll notice that he mentions John, but when he mentions himself, John is the author of this book, that he mentions himself, as it were, in verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple. He mentions himself as the other disciple. And then it says in verse 4, I love it because they've got a foot race going on, that he mentions that he outran Peter. And many people believe that this was a little bit of a, of a dig as to John having in his mind a crystal clear memory of these events. Because you see, John wrote his gospel account of this good news some 50 years after the event. Peter wrote his account and you may say, well, the gospel of Peter, I, where is the gospel? It's the gospel of Mark. Peter not being uh, very well educated as a scholar, but very well educated as a disciple and a witness of Christ, would have used Mark as an amanuensis or a secretary for the gospel. And he wrote his gospel as one of the first. It's a shorter gospel, and it doesn't have quite as many details as the Gospel of John. And so it's almost as if John in his old age is saying to, to Peter, because there's some question as to whether or not his book is going to be included in the literature for Christians. It's almost as if he's saying, and I outran you, as to saying, I even remember the foot race to the tomb. But John, as the author of this book, as we have seen from the very beginning in chapter 1 until chapter 21, which we end in just a few short weeks, by the way, from the very beginning, he has not put himself forward, but he has put Jesus Christ forward by every action and word and deed, by every scripture being fulfilled, by every prophecy being met, by every word proven to be true, he's put forward a challenge to that that we have held as myth. That that we say, it makes for a good story, but it doesn't make any difference in my life. John has come and has said, I am writing everything in this book, not only that you may believe with your head, but that you may come to move from your doubt and myth to an understanding and belief as truth, and then life. That as your heart begins to rest in these truths, it gives you life. And he focuses on Mary Magdalene. 
and so shall we this morning. And I want you to observe the movement of faith in Mary Magdalene. And that movement is similar to ours, if not the great example of how our faith will or is to move. A faith that says, I adore Jesus, I will honor Jesus by my actions, but I'm not really expecting in a graveyard to find a living, breathing foot and hand Jesus. In other words, I believe in the Bible, by and large. I believe that I am a Christian. But there are certain things that I either don't understand or I, they don't really have much bearing or weight in my life. In other words, if you remove the story of the resurrection, I'm not sure that it would make much difference in my life. Or, because Jesus has risen on this Easter Sunday, it doesn't really change my Monday through Saturday this coming week. So I want to invite you to join me to follow Mary Magdalene as she goes pursuing a body that she can honor. And what she discovers, she discovers as her eyes are opened, she discovers as Christ comes to her and approaches her and reveals himself to her, a living Lord that changes sorrow to great joy. It changes heartbreak to a heart alive. It changes someone that I believe that is dragging himself very early in the morning to a graveyard to someone that is leaping with life to tell others by the end of this narrative. So follow me if you would, but first let me introduce to you Mary Magdalene. If you have your Bibles, you can find this for yourself in Luke chapter 7. We read that in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, that behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now what is happening here is that this is very, this is earlier, and a woman has come to a banquet that a Pharisee, a preacher, has held, and there she makes her approach, trying not to draw attention to herself, but she does because she's a sinful woman. Now, we don't learn right here at this point who this is or what her sin is. And many people believe that this woman is a prostitute. But there's no evidence to show that in the Scriptures. And many others believe that this woman, though unnamed in this passage, is actually Mary Magdalene. Because, again, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, in uh, chapter 8, verse 2, we read that Jesus Christ was now, after this banquet, going throughout the city and the community. He was preaching. He was talking about the way to get into the kingdom of God. And he was talking about a future kingdom and a future life. 
You see, eternity and heaven and the new life and the new heavens and the new earth was always on the mind of Christ on this earth. And he would have it be on our mind as well. He would have us be aware of his presence with us now with the promise to never be separated with us all the way to the new life that we'll experience with him. But it says that in company with him, preaching this kingdom, that there were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and affirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now, the word, the, the term seven, the number seven in the Bible, is a number that is symbolic. It doesn't mean that there are exactly seven demons that possessed her body. It means the word for seven means, it'd be like us saying mega. It's called a perfect number because it's all-encompassing. It's like, how, how many times shall I forgive? Seven times, then seven times seven. I mean, it's, it's, it's mega. How many demons possessed her? Mega. But I thought, and they're never named, but I thought, you know, just to be personal, what might be the demons that possessed her? How about addiction to alcohol? How about pride in her looks and beauty? How about arrogant in knowledge and know-it-all? How about she sees others as food? I like that. C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letter has one of the demons talking to another demon. He says, you know the difference in God and his people and us and other demons? Because he says, we see people as food. You know, we just want to consume other people for our own ends. Number five, possessions. We believe that Mary Magdalene, in order to give this alabaster jar and then attend Jesus, she would never from the moment, from the moment that she had these demons cast out, from the moment that she was now like the garrison demoniac who had demons as well, from the moment that she was no longer a mental patient, she was in her right mind. She wanted to be with Jesus inseparably. So she attended with him. And we believe that she could do so out of her wealth. Maybe, maybe her wealth possessed her previous to this. Number six, preoccupation. You know, and that's usually a problem with us that struggle mentally. Just always distracted, always frustrated. Can never quite come to closure with things. Always preoccupied with a lot of things. A lot of them busy, busy, busy. Important, important, but never quite getting anywhere. Or maybe it was just fear. But that's Mary. And she comes to the grave early in the morning, it says in verse 1. We believe it to be still dark going to dawn. Let's say 6 o'clock in the morning. And as she's making her way there, notice that in verse 1, the author says it's the first day of the week. And it's as if he's saying by emphasis, it's the first day of a weekend, of a, of a new week. This past weekend, we have seen Jesus Christ falsely tried, crucified brutally, horribly, and then put in a borrowed tomb. But on this day, 
It's the first day of a new day. It's the first day of a new week forever. Do you understand the the moment in history that Mary Magdalene is standing in? As she's coming to this tomb, and as she makes her arrival at the tomb, it is, it is hour number one and day number one of week number one of year number one. We go from B.C. to A.D. It's a whole new ballgame, folks. No longer will it be the old religion and the old laws and the old sacrifices. Now is the new life. In Jesus, and it begins at this moment. And so she begins to make a transition. Her first transition is she's going to have to learn to rest in the truth and not theories. Let's do a quick word study. If you look at verses 2 and verses 3 and verses 15, I want to show you something. If you look in verse 2, there's the word, and you can circle it, that she runs to the, the Simon Peter. So she's running, okay? This is the first person that we see running here. In just a few moments, we're going to see John and Peter in a foot race, and then they're running. And then later, we're going to see Mary run again. So there's not a lot of rest when you're running. But she runs first to the disciples. And what she does is she puts forth a theory. And that's the word that I want to call your attention to. When it says in verse, uh, verse uh, 11 that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. The word there for look, or some of your Bibles may have beheld, the word there is the word that we get the word theory from. When she stooped to look into the tomb, she begins to theorize. It's a look that begins to try to take the data and take that data and come to some conclusion. We see that word used again in verse 6 where it says that Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now when John looks into the tomb, he blepos. He sees and he believes. He becomes the first convert to the resurrection by what is not in the tomb. He looks in the tomb and he sees the linen and it causes him to conclude that Jesus has risen. But Mary theorizes and rests her faith, as it were, on her theory, and it gives her no comfort at all. In fact, in verse 2, she goes to the disciples, and she says, they took his body. That's my theory. And then we see in verse 13 that she, the angels, she's not impressed with the angels at all. I mean, everybody else in the scripture falls down in fright. Mary's not. I got my theory and I'm sticking to it. In fact, you can help me with my theory. I want to convert you too. Where is? You're asking me why am I weeping? Well, let me tell you my story. 
let me tell you my theory of the resurrection. And she says, somebody stole the body. Grave robbers. Now, it doesn't explain why the linen would be remaining, but grave robbers. And there were grave robbers during that day. And we know that this was a rich man's tomb. And then in verse 15, she's going to test her theory because she's not getting a lot of traction. John has now gone back and he's saying he's risen. Peter is still like her. He's kind of on the edge of the fence. He hasn't been quite converted to her theory, but he's heard her theory. So he's still noodling on it, as it were. The word is thereo. You looked, but you're theorizing. You haven't come to, to say it is true, but you're starting to put your weight on a theory. But it's creating restlessness. And notice in verse 15 that Jesus slash gardener shows up. And before she recognizes Jesus, she's changed theories now. She says, oh, you're a gardener. So the gardener theory is, is that the gardener, knowing that this is a borrowed tomb, knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross in the place of criminals, would say, I'm taking the body out in order to put it somewhere else, in order to reserve the tomb for royalty and for the wealthy man that it's reserved for, not a criminal. So she looks at the gardener and she tests another theory. You're the gardener, you, not a grave robber. You put it aside, so tell me where it is and I'll go get it. Notice again. Not only this restlessness, but the sadness of a woman who I believe with all of our heart desires to never be separated from Jesus. Is saying in effort to not be separated from Jesus, I'm expecting a corpse. I'm expecting a body. I want Jesus in a box. I want Jesus in a bag. I want Jesus all wrapped up and tidy. You moved him over there, I'll move him back over here. Folks, I don't want to beat her up because I do it all the time. Now, that, don't get me wrong with what I'm getting ready to say, but there is nothing wrong with Christian music. There is nothing wrong with Christian literature. There's nothing wrong with commentaries for those of you that do Bible studies or prepare messages to teach. I do that all the time. But when I begin to put my weight solely on that, Kind of the way that people have packaged Jesus and not the living Jesus out of his own word and, and to know that I can come to the scriptures and read them reliably for myself, then I can begin to drift. Oh, I don't dishonor him, but he's not as alive. In other words, when I rely on other people to pray for me and don't pray for myself, I begin to drift and I begin to theorize. But notice that she does come to a point where she moves from the truth. She moves from her restless theories to embrace the truth. And when she does so, she has faith. Now, as she moves, it's a movement that we see causes her to turn because of grace. And there are a couple of questions, and I'm going to cover them in the time that remains. There's a couple of questions where I 
have asked people in the course of this week to read this scripture and tell me immediately, what are your questions? What comes to mind? And one of the questions that came up was, what caused her to turn? What caused her not only to return to intimacy with, with Christ, but what caused her to turn? Because it says here in the scriptures that she now stoops at the tomb, so it's a little low. She herself begins to look in. She sees two angels. She tests her theory on them. And then it says she turns to see who she believes to be the gardener. And then she turns back. What was it that caused her to turn? Did the angels suddenly stand up and bow? Did, uh, did the angels point over her shoulders? Did she hear Jesus? Did she sense Jesus? Maybe he stood in the, the rising sunlight and she saw a shadow on it. Well... She may not be happy. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know why she turned. But we're led to believe that even then, by the very presence of Christ, who wants her to be aware of his inseparable presence now and forever, that as he drew near to one that loved him, she sensed his nearness, even though, even though, she was still yet unaware that it was Jesus. In other words, she had, a, she had an awareness that someone is now coming into the picture and she turns to them, but she doesn't see them. Can I, can I challenge you and me? We do this a lot. We do this a lot, particularly in our crisis. What is it right now that you would say is the greatest heartache that you face? What is the thing that moves you to tears or to sorrow? What is it right now that you say, this is a trial for me. This is, this is huge. And it's hard. What is it that gives you what some have called the Magdalenic faith? The faith of Mary Magdalene. In other words, you show up at a tomb. You show up at church. You show up for Bible study. You show up in the presence of other Christians and believers. But all the while, in the back of your mind, you're saying, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be faithful. Oh, I'm not going to abandon Jesus, but it's as if he's dead. That in my circumstances, oh, I, I wish, I wish that he were here, but I'm going to have to face it as if he's not here. And you do face it as if he's not there. Jesus comes into the picture at this point. And at this point, Mary Magdalene is, is the great sadness is that here is someone that loved Jesus with a spiritual passion, but she's so spiritually blind to his presence in her sorrow. Do you see Jesus in your picture of sorrow right now? If not, then you've got the the Magdalenic faith. Oh, you'll stick with him, but is he really with me? I mean, hands and feet with me. Mind and heart with me right now. And that is where Christ comes and she looks and she sees a gardener. Second question that I got asked a lot in response to someone reading this and, and then asking, making an observation, they said, why didn't she recognize him? 
I mean, this is one that back in Luke 7, and uh, that she's washing his feet, so she would be intimate, intimate with him. And then in Luke 8, she attended him every day. She would have known his face. Was it because she had a veil of tears, kind of like bacon grease on your windshield? That in a pouring rain, it's just you can't even, you know, I can kind of see trees and I'm barely on the road. I can see a sign, but I can't make it out. Was it because she was so weepy and sorrowful? Because it says here that she was, in verse 11, stood weeping outside of the tomb. Maybe some have put forward that it was Jesus himself and his body is so surprising that Isaiah 52 says that his body was so marred on the cross that it didn't even look human. And now, following his resurrection, he's saying, don't hold on to me because this is a new body and I'm going to heaven. Maybe his body was so glorified, was so pure, was so holy that she was like, she didn't recognize him from having last seen him. But if that were true, then why mistake him for a lowly gardener? Could it be that the reason she doesn't recognize him is it harkens back to her theory? Could it be that maybe in this crisis and this sorrow that she's even kind of going back to those old things that haunted her? She's going back, as it were, to life without Christ. Oh, I love him and I'll worship him, but I'm living my old life on my own. I'm independent, autonomy, life without Jesus. I know, I know of him and I believe in him, but it's life without Jesus. Could it be unbelief that causes her not to recognize him? In other words, you're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to be there. You're not supposed to be there, so I turn back. You're not, you're not going to, of course you're not Jesus. Could it be unbelief? The very one that she should have recognized would cause her to not recognize him? It says, there's an interesting little word there at the second clause or third sentence of verse 15 where it says, supposing him to be the gardener. Folks, our ideas about life and our, our basing ourselves and resting in truth always starts with a presupposition or presuppose something. In other words, I have a presupposition this morning that if I step down here, that gravity and my old body are going to allow me to make it to the floor. And I'm not just going to walk out on air, as it were. So I have a presupposition in gravity. I have a presupposition in the abilities of my, my knee joints to hold up my weight for the jarring of the concrete floor. Those are my presuppositions. So I step out supposing that I'm going to reach the floor. So it says in verse 15, she turned supposing him to be the gardener. Again, Jesus, Jesus Christ awakens her from her spiritual blindness that he's not present with her during her sorrows. How? He preaches a sermon to her. I don't see a sermon. Do you see a sermon? Well, it doesn't look like a sermon to me the way I preach. Um, but it is a sermon in verse 16. 
Jesus spoke a sermon to her. He said to her, Miriam. Now that, in your Bible, is Mary. But he spoke it in Aramaic. Her language. Her terms. Her life. In other words, she was able to hear her voice on the lips of the one that she, she loved. I pray all the time, Lord, there are lots of voices that speak to me. I feel like I'm possessed. I feel like I'm a maniac at times. I feel like I'm crazy at times in a mental patient. But Lord, with all these voices in my head and all these thoughts in my head, you speak in a voice that I know is yours. And you speak in a way that I know like John 10, verses 3 and 4, that the sheep know the master, the shepherd's voice. Speak to this little sheep in a voice that I'll recognize. And if so, that will return me. That will guide me to your side. I've got to leave as we prepare to come to this table with the last point. But think and riddle me this. Who took the first step? That's what made it grace. Just like with the Gerasian demoniac, Jesus went to the location of that one who was a mental patient as well and troubled with thoughts, possessed by many demons. And he spoke first to that one and gave him peace of mind such that he would sit at Christ's feet and he would never want to leave him again. That it's Jesus who comes to us even now and he's calling. And it's a resurrection call. And the call is that he is with you. He is present with you. Dash your theories. Dash them upon the rocks. For they are hopeless theories. We are worse, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. We are the most pitied people alive if we believe in Jesus only for this life. Says Paul. If you only believe in a Jesus in a bag or a box here. And you don't believe in a living, present Jesus for here and then then our life is wasted. And so she found, and she returned, and she clung to him. And that's the last question that I was asked. The last observation. Pastor Phil, having read this, why does Jesus say, don't, don't cling to me? Or as some of your Bibles say, don't hold on to me. Well, was it because his body had not quite materialized? Kind of like the old Star Trek movie, you know, I mean, uh, shows, you know, where you got the, 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 the beam, you know, all those particles. You know, don't, don't hold on to me quite yet, Mary. Don't, don't touch me. Or don't touch me because I'm holy and you're not. There's a big chasm between you and me now. See, you're still in sinful land and I'm in holy land and, you can't touch me anyway. You'll be scorched just like touching the mountain. You'll be burnt up. 
Well, now, if that's true, then why in verse 27, in just a few minutes, does he not only let Thomas touch him, but welcomes him? Say, hey, man, hold on to me. Touch me. Hey, look at, feel these nail scars. Feel my, I mean, come on. Why does he go out of his way to be touched? What is going on? What Jesus is saying is not do not touch, but he's saying do not cling and hold. What he's saying is, it's almost as if Mary, now, hearing her name, he knows me. He speaks my language. He knows my need. And he is with me now. He's back. We're inseparable. She hugs him such that he goes, ow! Ouch! It's like when my granddaughter, at times, squeeze her so much or in an odd moment, she says, you're hurting me. You're hurting me. Jesus is saying, it is a new day, Mary. With this dawn that we're standing in, I'm inseparable from you, but don't hold me like of old. There is a promise, and we'll read this later. There's a promise coming of the Holy Spirit where I will be in you through the Holy Spirit inseparably. Don't hold on to me. In other words, it's not Jesus and me makes everything right in the sense of Jesus and me only. Jesus is not just your commodity. Notice what he does. He says, Mary, don't cling to me. Don't just hold on to me. I want you to go and tell. I want you, because you're now experiencing my love, to not just hold on to me. Not just go to a Bible study, go to worship services, not just go to Sunday school, not just do your own quiet time, not just pray for yourself, not just a holy little huddle alone, not just you and your own personal walk with Jesus. Because you see, you can hold him. And you can cling to him, but not too much. Only holding on to Jesus is not a good thing. Only, now I'm not talking about faith alone here, but I'm talking about just it never going anywhere, your faith. If your faith is just so secretive and so cloistered, Jesus doesn't want that because she becomes the first missionary. He says, now... Now that you have received this good news, good news, go and tell my brothers. Not my servants, not my friends. Go tell the family. In other words, this news, because it's good news, and because you've experienced my love, is made for community. Go and speak it into other people's lives. Go from your sorrow, now turn to joy and speak it. I'm back. I'm around. I'm present. Go and tell that to John and go and tell that to Peter and go and tell that to Matthew. Go to tell that to everybody in your domain, your family, your neighbors, everybody, particularly those in sorrow. Don't just hold it to yourself, but to say, as he was with me and is with me, he will be with you and shall be with you. And I love the parting verse. Chapter 18, very short. She did it. She did it. I, um, 
I find that it's amazing that we do evangelism and we witness to the things that we love when we are most in love with them. It becomes easy. So that two rivers become transformed. That we share our love like people that are in love. Because we have a fresh awareness of the presence of the one who loves me. And that is the Easter story. Is that we don't worship and honor and do homage to a dead and fallen hero. But we celebrate Easter every Sunday by recognizing that He lives and He is with me and He promises to be with others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take these elements and set them aside for your holy use, that you would feed our faith. We confess and repent of all theories that has kept Christ out of the picture in our sorrows. We confess all of the demons or idols that we have bent the knee to that still haunt us. We confess our hunger to hear our name on your lips and a voice to our heart that we will know is from you, the shepherd. And we confess our undying commitment to love you. Become to our heart more present. Open our ears to hear our name. Open our eyes to recognize you present in all of our circumstances of life, now and forever. And to that degree, we ask that you use these elements in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite our men to come forward.